The old pilot's playing tales on wings of gossamer. The dream of flight never really started with men wanting to build complicated machines and clamber into them to take to the skies. It started with the idea of mimicking the birds, with strapping wings onto our arms and flying with them into the vaulted heavens higher and higher, but perhaps not as high as Icarus, the son of Daedalus of ancient Greek mythology, who climbed high enough to melt the wax, holding his wings together, and tumbling into the sea, he drowned. Similar tales of failed flight on man-made wings have occurred throughout the last 2,000 years or so. Around AD 60, a winged actor attempted to liven up a party held by Roman Emperor Nero, only to fall to his death. Shockingly, this wasn't even considered a particularly odd occurrence at the time. The great artist and engineer Leonardo da Vinci is often credited as the first to propose a reasonable flying machine in 1490, a giant bat-shaped craft that used both the pilot's arms and legs to power the wings. Though the aircraft was never built, it was a remarkable achievement considering the knowledge of the day, but modern examination of the design has concluded that it would not have flown either. Other incidents followed, with would-be aviators leaping off mosques, cathedrals, castle walls, and even the Eiffel Tower, with nothing more than wood, string, and feathers attached to their arms, and many, like Icarus, died. Of the 50 attempts documented in Clive Hart's The Prehistory of Flight, as many as a dozen may have actually flown or glided for a few brief moments, but eventually all realised that a man's arms would never have the strength to hold them aloft. Artificial wings weren't the only methods employed by early aviation pioneers. The Chinese have a love of kites that goes back to 1000 BC. Various accounts tell of men taking to the air strapped to these devices. When the explorer Marco Polo returned from China, he claimed to have seen drunken sailors hoisted up into the air on large kites. For what reason is not quite clear, but I guess it was an ancient version of Hold My Beer. A Japanese tale from the late 16th century tells how the legendary bandit Ishikawa Goemon, an oriental version of Robin Hood, was suspended from a large kite and flown by his accomplices into a heavily guarded castle. So, for those wishing to soar like an eagle, it was back to the drawing board, and it would be those less-than-elegant machines that would eventually take us aloft. But despite the success of engine-powered flights, many still believe that man could fly under his own power. We fast forward to more recent history when, in the 1920s, we see Frederick Gerhardt in his unlikely-looking seven-winged machine that resembled a Venetian blind on steroids and mounted on a bicycle pedal his way into the history books. Mount Cook Field in Dayton, Ohio, was where he apparently took to the air, initially towed by a motor car, but then, with his bicycle powering a propeller, 
He was apparently able to fly for short hops of around 20 feet, rising a couple of feet into the air. In Germany, the authorities generally agree that the first actual flight occurred in 1929 when an athlete named Krauss, aided by a bungee elastic cord for takeoff, flew a full 250 yards, but it was several years later in 1934 that the German helicopter pioneer Engelbert Zaska built a large pedal-powered monoplane. This machine had a span of about 66 feet and it first flew at Tempelhof Airport in Berlin for about the same distance as the wingspan. The very next year, Helmut Hassler and Franz Willinger flew their craft, the HV-1 Muskelflieger, or Muffli for short. Their takeoff was also aided by a bungee launch cord, but once airborne, it was able to keep going for over 770 yards, a flight of 50 seconds. These flights were competing for a prize offered by the Frankfurt Polytechnical Society of 5,000 marks for the first man-powered flight to complete a closed circuit, around 2.500 metres apart. Herr Willinger noted that, We must of course subtract the effects of the catapult start are about 165 feet and the final glide are 246 feet, but you can say that they were powerfully successful. The drive for further study into man-powered flight was provided to a great extent by such prizes, as much as the competition and desire for knowledge. A great benefactor was the Latvian industrialist and inventor Henry Kramer. Henry's father emigrated to England and his son joined him in the family plywood and chipboard fabrication business. His flair for innovation and invention was much valued and the processes that Henry developed helped to construct such diverse things as the de Havilland mosquito bomber and glass fibre reinforced epoxy resin. He had a great interest in aviation, and in conversation with friends one day, it was suggested that man could fly, if only someone would put up a prize for it. Henry Kramer volunteered immediately, and so began his long association with the Royal Aeronautical Society, and over the next 27 years, his personal sponsorship led to the construction of many aircraft. The first of Kramer's big prizes to be won was for flying a figure-of-eight course around two markers a mile apart, starting and ending at a height of at least 10 feet. The first officially authenticated takeoff and landing by a man-powered aircraft was made in late 1961 by Derek Piggott in Southampton University's man-powered aircraft rather unimaginatively named Sumpak. Derek was no athlete, but actually the chief flying instructor at Lasham Gliding Centre. He was an experienced stunt and movie pilot who flew the Shuttleworth box kite in Those magnificent men in their flying machines and in the film Blue Max when, in a brilliant scene, he threaded his way through a viaduct in a red Fokker triplane. Out of 40 attempts in the sum pack, 
the best achieved was 650 metres. At the same time, the employees of de Havilland Aircraft Company formed a club and together they built the Hatfield Puffin, which managed a very reasonable 908 metres. John Wimpenny was the pilot and peddler, an aeronautical engineer who worked on an amazing array of aircraft from the Mosquito to the Hawkers Italy HS125. He held the record for some ten years, but the prize was still up for grabs. Part of the puffin was reused in the Liverpool University's liver puffin, but the reincarnation didn't do nearly as well as the original. By now the prize had been increased to £50,000, and the list of aircraft built grew rapidly, with attempts being made as far afield as Austria, the United States, Poland, the USSR, France, Belgium, Scotland and Japan, who came very close, with Nihon University's Stork B. They established a new world record for man-powered flight when student Takashi Kato covered the distance of 2,094 metres at Shumofusa Naval Air Base near Tokyo. Sadly, they didn't manage to complete the figure of eight course after touching a wingtip on the ground about three-quarters of the way around. It was American Paul McCready who finally made the breakthrough with a craft called the Gossamer Condor in 1977. McCready was a U.S. naval pilot who had a master's in physics and a Ph.D. in aeronautics from Caltech. He had become an inventor and was also a three-time winner of the U.S. National Open Class Soaring Championship. He created a clever design which employed a pusher propeller and a canard similar to that used by the Wright brothers whose forward elevator concept flew some 75 years before. He also copied their wing warping technique to get around the turns in the figure of eight. The machine was huge with a span of 96 feet but it only weighed 70 pounds, that's 32 kilos. It was constructed using piano wire, aluminium tubing and carbon fibre, with the wing ribs being made of expanded polystyrene. The entire structure was then wrapped in a thin, transparent plastic mylar, the same material that was used to make the tapes of old-fashioned tape recorders. The pilot he chose was Brian Allen, a self-taught hang glider pilot who was also a keen bicyclist. At only 26, the fit young man only weighed 141 pounds, but he was the essential member of the team who, for 6 minutes and 22 seconds, would sweat out the journey to victory. The course was laid out at Minter Field in Shafter, California, and there were 10-foot-high markers at the start and finish to ensure the condor was high enough to qualify for the prize. Powering the 12-and-a-half-foot-long propeller, Alan was approaching the end when suddenly a voice punched through the sweltering cockpit's plastic skin. Ten feet! Climb to twelve! Climb! He made the final effort, and they were through. The prize was theirs. Now a bigger goal lay ahead of them. 
The second Kramer Prize was for £100,000, which at the time was worth $222,000, the largest ever cash prize in the history of aviation. To win it, they would need to cross the English Channel by flying from England to France. For this, MacReady had to build a version of the Gossamer Condor that could be dissembled and transported to England. Named the Gossamer Albatross, it was very similar to the Condor, and early on a calm morning in June 1979, it was assembled near Folkestone on the south coast of England. Ahead lay around 22 miles of water. Allen started working to hit the required rate of between 77 and 93 pedal rotations every minute, something that he would have to maintain for the next 169 minutes. Slowly and silently, with the huge propeller turning less than twice a second, the Gossamer Albatross got airborne. Whilst the aircraft's progress looked smooth and languid, within the plastic enclosure, for Alan it was anything but. As the warmth of the morning started to move the air, the smooth conditions gave way to turbulence which increased the drag on the airframe. He was bucked around on unpredictable up and down drafts and the headwinds rose to over seven miles an hour. At one point he had to make a large course correction to avoid the turbulence following the stern of an enormous tanker ploughing up the channel. He maintained his height by using the acoustic sensors from a Polaroid SX-70 camera and communicated by radio, but that failed not long into the attempt, so for most of the flight he had to rely on signals and head nods. He was maintaining the equivalent of a bicyclist going at 21 miles an hour for nearly three hours without rest. The technique that they thought was the most efficient was to fly only a couple of feet above the water, as going higher required up to 10% more effort, but the turbulence was defeating Alan. He wasn't going to make it. To save the aircraft, the crew asked him to climb up, so that they could attach a tow line and pull the albatross to land. With a heavy heart, he climbed the enormous craft up to 12 feet, but miraculously, he found a smooth layer of air and with the going much easier, decided to continue. However, the flight was taking longer than anticipated and Brian Allen had run out of water. Now suffering from dehydration and agonising muscle cramps, he was only able to use one leg, but at last the French coast came into sight. He was so tired and in such pain, he thought he might have to just pile the craft into the rocky shore, but with one last superhuman effort, he doggedly turned to fly along the shoreline. After going for another quarter of a mile, he came around a breakwater and spotted a smooth beach. With the holidaymakers scattering, he lined up to land. A quarter of a mile off Cap Grines, Paul McCready saw the prop slowly stop and felt relief that it was all over. But, perhaps surprisingly, no great rush of elation. 
Ever since first sketching the design on the back of an envelope, he said it was obvious that we could do the flight. It had just been a question of how and when. It was nice to succeed on the first try. A miracle, really. Quite surprising. While the Kramer Prizes did not lead to the adoption of human-powered flight as a popular form of travel, they did spur innovation. For designers, these machines offered the most exciting of challenges. Ultra-lightweight materials have revolutionised techniques of construction and producing aircraft with huge wingspans and tiny all-up weights. The aircraft of the 1970s were so flimsy they could only be flown in near-perfect conditions. The machines being built now can cope much better. We have reached a transitional period in human-powered flight. The basic research has been done and this next stage will lead to more practical aircraft, which can be built by a group of enthusiasts and flown perhaps as a sport. For the pilot, the human factors involved are unique, offering a challenge not found in any other branch of aviation. Paul McCready's experiments in low-speed flight fed into the development of solar-powered planes. Facebook and Airbus are both currently experimenting with high-altitude pseudo-satellites, capable of transmitting broadband to remote areas of the world, whose lineage can be traced back to the lightweight, man-powered aircraft. Henry Kramer, whose prizes motivated this odd corner of aviation, was a self-effacing man who avoided the limelight. It's doubtful that human-powered flight would have been achieved in development to the extent it has without his encouragement and support. The Royal Aeronautical Society honoured him with a championship. In 1975 and in 1988, the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale presented him with its highest award, the Gold Air Medal, later making him a Companion of Honour. Paul McCready's honours are almost too many to list. From amongst the 49 noteworthy awards and honours he received, he was given the Collier Trophy from the National Aeronautics Association, the Reed Aeronautical Award, the Engineer of the Century Gold Medal, the Lindbergh Award, the Gold Medal and Distinguished Service Award from the FIA, the National Air and Space Museum Trophy, the Walker Prize, and he was enshrined into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. He was listed in Flying Magazine's list of 51 heroes of aviation and in Time Magazine's list of the century's 100 greatest minds. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show aviation podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.